Hi, and welcome to the Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hare. And I'm Joe Hellerstein. Today on the podcast, we're going to welcome a longtime friend of ours, Carlos Gestrin. Carlos is a decorated professor of computer science at Stanford, and until recently was the senior director of AI and machine learning at a little computer company known as Apple. Previously, he was a professor at the University of Washington and at Carnegie Mellon as well. On the industry front, prior to Apple, he was CEO and co-founder of a startup from his GraphLab project at CMU, which was eventually called Turi. Turi developed a platform for developers and data scientists to build and deploy intelligent machine learning-driven applications. It was acquired by Apple, where I have to assume the technology was integrated into some of their products, so hopefully we'll hear more about that today. Carlos is also an artist who's worked with traditional media like paint and canvas, as well as AI-driven responsive media. And uh, what else can I say? Um, Carlos often sports a Brazilian football shirt, and he's a good friend, and un tipo muy amable. This will be a great conversation, so let's dive right in. Welcome, Carlos. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you, too. So I guess I'll go first, Carlos. Are there some um, Apple product features you've worked on that our listeners would be familiar with? Yeah, so we joined Apple in 2016 uh, through the acquisition of the company Turi, and we were really lucky. So at the time we joined, Apple was developing what was then to be called Face ID, so the ability to unlock your phone using your face. And we got really involved in that project from the very beginning, and it was really great for the integration of the company with, um, with Apple as a whole. It gave us an opportunity to jump right in, collaborate across the company. It was a completely interdisciplinary project at Apple because it included new hardware, new drivers, new user experiences, new software, new machine learning models. And so the, the, that was kind of the, the first jump into the deep end experience that we had at Apple. But since then, and until we left, we were basically involved with almost every machine learning infused feature that Apple uh, developed. So it was, a, it was a great overall experience. Wow. Can you describe some of the engineering work you oversaw as part of those projects at Apple and Turi? Yeah, the engineering work. So unlike some other big companies, Apple is functionally organized. So there isn't a, a division for EC2 like Amazon or uh, lambdas and so on. It's really, there's a division for software, one for hardware, one for uh, basically silicon and, and a few others like that. And so we're brought in to help create a new group in AI that would work across the company. And in that, we define four pillars. We, we're developing the machine learning platform that was going to be used for the whole organization. We worked on uh, third-party tools, so tools for developers across the world who are bringing AI into their apps. Uh, we worked on new features in research and then education programs in AI across the company. So that was the broad take. Uh, there was a long journey along the way, but it was an exciting one in each one of those areas. So I'm sure if you were doing machine learning at the scale of a company like Apple, there must have just been scads of data, and probably when you came in, it was it was from all over the place. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit for our listeners about some of the data engineering challenges that you faced. Absolutely. You know, back 2016, when we first started at Apple, but really across industry, data tended to be pretty siloed and separated, and a lot of the machine learning work was around uh, practices, I would say, on how to deal with data. So how you think about things that you know, you to know really well about, you know, how do you figure out what the data is 
uh, how do you version data, how do you make sure that you have provenance, how do you think about, uh, for a model that was shipped, what was the data that was using that model and how it gets integrated. So not just the amazing pieces of creating a new fancy model and you know tuning learning rates, but it was really about what does the whole process looks like. Later on, we, we got involved into how data gets labeled, how labels get defined, how that iteration loop uh, happens. We did a lot of work on failure analysis as well. So when is a machine learning model working or not working? So I don't think about data engineering in a maybe ETL sense, but it's really about a, really from user experience backwards to you know, how data gets uh, defined and how problems get defined because ultimately the data defines the machine learning model and really defines the values you want to reflect in the world. So it's a really integrative process. Yeah. And on, on that last point, which I agree is so important, I'm curious what processes you went through to assess data sets and models prior to production deployment. Uh, that is a, a really good question. And that's something that I'm thinking a lot about in research right now, because I think overall, Across industry, the processes tend to be pretty ad hoc. Um, they are often defined by a small group of engineers and designers and product managers thinking about uh, the different aspects of data or what labelers might want to do if you're going out to label in the world or what data you want to bring in in a kind of closed loop fashion. But I find that it's really hard to figure out what metrics you want to give or how do you train um, somebody who's going to label data for you or how do you figure out what's, what's a part of key to the product and what is not. So a lot of the process is about kind of circumscribing what aspects of uh, data is important to you and what parts you want to dig in deeper and understand better. It's a little bit generics. We can go back into details, but I hope it, it helps guide the conversation a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it might also be um, necessary to kind of choose what's important based on the particular product or feature you're developing. Um, so it's certainly very, very interesting to think about, you know, let me put it another way. What were the things that kept you up at night that you, you worried, you know, that would undermine a successful deployment? <laughs> that's a that's a really um, good question. So, for example, one of the features that we created in the group was something called Race to Speak for Apple Watch. So normally with uh, assistance, you have to put some activation word in, like something Google, something Siri to get started. Mm -hmm. And then on the Apple Watch, what we created you know, across multiple teams was the ability to just raise your arm and from that motion in the speech automatically evoke Siri. Which seemed like a really cool feature. And I can imagine, you know, writing a paper about it, maybe co-authored with future and, and, you know, and being, being done. But in practice, you know, you worry about every detail. What happens if somebody's in the middle of a podcast talk and then Siri goes off on the watch because the person is like so, you know, articulate with their arms like me. So Latino. Or what happens if somebody's driving or, you know, walking or dancing, washing dishes. And if you think about even something that is as simple as that gesture-based evocation of an assistant, there's so many possibilities of what can go wrong and you can't cover them all. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, especially the way that we approached it at Apple, where there was a lot of thoughtfulness about users' privacy and what data we collected from users, we weren't 
just able to take everybody's data from you know their whole day and have somebody sit in and you know listen to their audio and listen to their motions and be able to say this is what's happening we have to be very thoughtful about how do we cover all these corner cases and possibilities um and at the same time think about the user's uh, privacy along the way and, and great user experiences so i i worried a lot so to to summarize i worried a lot about the the so-called no unknown unknowns about <laughs> a user experience right so right. what are the pieces where we don't have enough coverage but we don't know that we need to go and ask people to drive with the watch on to collect data for them well i can imagine this is made challenging by the fact that you know people are going to watch what apple is doing you know very carefully and so if you want to do tests and limited rollouts you know there might might be hard to do on the other hand, when you just let this out into the world, you know, I can imagine then you have all of these unknown unknowns. And I guess on top of that, right, in an ever-changing world, these distributions are going to shift so that even if you get it right, you know, that was right maybe for now and not for the future. And I'm curious, um, have you any insights on how to account for that as part of the, the machine learning process? Yeah, so, so this question of distribution shift is one that's become very timely in the community. And I'm, I'm very interested in this topic. In fact, I have a collaboration um, at Stanford with another professor, Tatsu Hachimoto, one of the, his students, Chen Li, where we're thinking about distribution shift. Mm. Um, and we're thinking about it a little differently. But generally, the notion here is you train your model using some data set, which you beautifully engineered and you, um, you know, your data wrangled. But the, the, first of all, the data in the real world is different because the data set that you create might not be representative of what happens in the world. But the other thing that happens is folks start using products in different ways and uh, new ways. And not only do you want the models to adapt to that, but you want to learn because you might want to invest more in something. You might discover there's more people from Brazil using the product in new ways, and you want to add additional functionality to encourage that engagement. And so this notion of really bringing more transparency or understanding to what's happening to the distributions or what's happening to the usage of a product of a model is something that's, I think, really interesting and underexplored mm. uh, in the community. So very, very interested in that. But the question of, uh, you know, even, even how something gets used. Another feature that, that uh, we worked on was automatically detecting hand washings. So we launched this. We were working beforehand, but, you know, the, the pandemic came mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. uh, and there was, uh, you know, even higher focus on, uh, you know, hand hygiene and thinking about uh, spreading of that. And so there's this feature in the Apple Watch where, it uh, you know reminds you to wash your hands when you get home, but also automatically detect whether or not you wash your hands and what, wash hands well, uh, which again is a kind of gesture audio-based technique. But one thing that was really interesting in that process is to ask yourself, for example, what is a good hand washing? And then you, you send it to the world, and people are washing their hands in all sorts of different ways. And <laughs> do you want to prescriptively define you know what's a a good way to do this when you're detecting and you discover new ways people are washing their hands or do you want to say, okay, I don't want to adapt because, you know, if you don't want to wash your hands well, then I don't want to give, you know, you credit for it. Like this notion of what is a distribution shift and what's a, um, in the specification of a product and what's out. Um, I think it's a, again, 
a really interesting area that goes beyond just kind of adapting uh, the the models you're changing in the domain, but really defining your problem in the kind of outer loop of uh, model development and product development. Carlos, one of the things that's fascinating to hear you talk about at Apple is, you know, it's a it's a product company that sells manufactures and sells objects in the real world. Does a lot of sensing, um, and um, I think that's different than what we tend to run into these sort of business use cases. And so, whether it's with respect to uh, uh, distribution shift, as we were just talking about, or other issues in the sort of the data pipeline, the machine learning pipeline. Can you reflect on what's different in these sensory use cases than in other sort of data processing pipelines you've seen? And I'd say I've given a few sensory use cases, um, maybe biased because, you know, things that I find exciting, but Apple works on, on all sorts of data types and, and all sorts of data for, for a number of applications. And so um, it was interesting to see the range of those. I think different data types have, uh, if that's what you're, you're getting at, um, have different characteristics and they behave very differently. I think a lot of the work that we did was with image data, which I think is is a interesting form of unstructured data where it's harder to do uh, some of the ETL techniques that we normally get used to because the interpretation of uh, the data is much more complex algorithmically. So there was a, a lot of thought put into how do you understand the image data for either consumer images or some manufacturing work using computer vision that we've done, uh, you know, understanding what is an anomalous data, what is bad data, uh, what is um, you know what is a good quality outcome. Those those can be really interesting types. Uh, but of course, a lot of the work also involved you know good old fashioned uh, tables and uh, columns and and all that good stuff that you know better than me about. So it was really about that combination of all of those. Text was also, of course, very common in, in speech data. So maybe, Carlos, you can give us an example of what, what's an anomalous image, like in manufacturing? In manufacturing, yeah. So imagine uh, you have a manufacturing process where you're making devices, and you're going to detect faults in those devices for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's a cosmetic flaw like a scratch or maybe it's a, a fault in the production process. There's many ways you could do that. You can have hand inspection, which is also very common and helpful. Um, you can also have automation using computer vision, which has been used across industries in really interesting ways. I think the, the question there becomes, what are the things that you were trying to detect on those images to try to understand whether you have a flaw or you have a, a manufacturing defect? And you can imagine doing that through uh, some hand design rules. You can imagine doing that through some training data where you say, this is what my chip layout should look like. Or you can imagine doing that through anomaly detection where you say, I have a stream of images coming in. Most of the time, everything's laid out well, but here's one that hasn't been laid out well. Uh, can I highlight that? And, and this can be valuable in, in production in a variety of ways. So, for example, it can help you detect whether there's a bad device coming out of a manufacturing plant, but it can also detect overall for the manufacturing process, are there things that you're doing that are systematic? I think about this the difference between one prediction and maybe the so-called big data possibility here, where if you had hand inspection, you'd be able to detect some localized flaws, but you wouldn't really understand uh, overall 
whether there is some systematic problem. And some of those can be captured using basic statistics across you know, the averages and so on. But some of those, if they're kind of visually correlated, that becomes a really interesting computer vision problem to understand what is common across a large number of images. And so uh, one of the teams that we had uh, led by Danny Bixon, um, who was one of the co-founders of Turi, uh, showed that by looking across images, they were able to detect uh, some ways to improve manufacturing processes as a whole, uh, which you would have detected over each image independently, which I thought was a really interesting outcome. So in addition to all your work at Apple, I know you've been involved with a number of influential open source projects. Would you like to rattle off some of the highlights there? The highlights? Um, you know, I, I love them all. I love them all. <laughs> This is not a pick your favorite child question, yeah, I yeah. promise. The, the most <laughs> uh, popular projects include uh, XGBoost, uh, TVM, uh, Lime. Um, those are highlights. Of course, GraphLab had, uh, and PowerGraph had some impact at the time. There's a bunch of others, but I think the, the, the top three are the ones that I mentioned. So actually, on that note then, so things like uh, XGBoost, TVM, you know, I know XGBoost gets used all the time in Kaggle competitions, so it's like widely out there in people's hands. What's changed in you know, the arc of um, sort of these infrastructures over the decades since you started doing things like GraphLab and, and now that you're doing things uh, uh, like XGBoost and TVM, what's changed? Well, um, and, uh, these, are, these are touching upon different, I think, points in the development process. So XGBoost is, um, I think, in, in excitingly adopted. It's basically used by every company in the world, more or less, and, and across science. And, and there, the machine learning algorithm is pretty simple, and it was known before. It was really about making the whole thing robust and easy to use and robust to data problems and missing data and deal with different data types. I think that... The, the main properties of XGBoost were really about being robust to all sorts of weird input problems that were common, and then just being overall fast and, and easy to use. And so I address one part of the, of the trend here, which was more people wanted to do more machine learning in the real world, um, knowledge of the underlying practical issues and methods was limited and here's a tool where basically any any python programmer could actually get something good out of the way so it wasn't just kind of cargo competitions and and i got surprised by the number of people who you know tell me they use xyboost for all sorts of exciting things and, and unexpected things but tvm i think is uh, is a one that i'm i'm pretty proud of and um my you know, my former colleagues and students have a, an active company, OctaML, uh, who has been commercializing this idea. I think the trend here is is one where hardware targets, so the possible places you want to run machine learning models is just blowing up and increasing in, in a tremendous way. And you can think about mobile devices, you can think about edge, you can think about the cloud. And in general, the expectation was that a developer of machine learning models would be able to be also trained to optimize those models to run well, whether it is on GPUs in the cloud, on FPGA instances, on low power mobile 
processors or on Raspberry Pis. And as you know, you know better than me, uh, it's really hard to make those optimizations and it's really hard to think about them in an integrated way. And so uh, I think the, the trend there is one that's only going to increase the fragmentation of the potential hardware targets, only going to increase in the coming years. And so what TVM is about is automatically optimizing the models to run on this wide range of targets. And I think that idea is really exciting. And the fact that it uses machine learning to improve machine learning systems <laughs> is something that, uh, you know, it's been a dream of mine from the beginning and only now realized I only, I only just a little bit. I really mean it. But it's a, it's a great trend, I think. So, Carlos, you always seem to pick important things to work on, which is a lovely trait. Uh, what's your take on the ML toolchain in startup space these days? Um, you've mentioned TVM and as it's OctoML. Uh, what else in the space is exciting? I think this is a, it's a great and, and difficult question. It has evolved a lot. There's a lot of fragmentation in the space of tools. There's a lot of companies trying to uh, build better tools for machine learning. So when we started the work on Turi at the time, in 2012 or so, the opportunities for tools for machine learning were pretty limited and you needed a lot of expertise. Now there is a, a lot of possibilities that folks can tackle from tools that require more expertise, like uh, using TensorFlow to all sorts of uh, you know, no-code versions of machine learning tools. I, I find the space hard to navigate, to be honest. I find that uh, people are often asking me still, like, you know, where do they get started or uh, what should they do for this? Should they pick this or that? And to be honest, I, I don't know how to answer that question. I think that uh, there isn't a simple way to say you have a problem at hand, other than maybe searching the web and finding some GitHub repository that solved the problem already. There isn't a simple way to go from the problem you're trying to solve to the, the appropriate level of abstraction for you of how to, you want to use the tools. Like, you know, the no-code tools might be good for some folks, but not good for others. And for many tools, you hit a wall in terms of either it becomes too difficult or it becomes not powerful enough. Mm -hmm. So I think there is still room to think through what does that end-to-end -end development process look like? Um, and how to make it more effective. One thing I'll say though is um, there's a lot less need in my opinion to tweak model architectures if you're a deep learning person or come up with like new like parameterizations of machine learning models. I think a lot of the game is gonna be on getting the right kind of data, understanding how the data reflects the problem you're trying to solve, um, understanding when it's working, not working, uh, and um, and closing the loop, so that outer development process is uh, is a little more difficult today than it is to find a decent solution in the like in the mathy part of machine learning for a problem at hand. For for most problems, not for all, for most problems. So you talked about fragmentation, and you know I, I know there's been a lot of efforts at category creation in machine learning tooling. There's um, parameter servers and feature stores and um, uh, just, you know, sort of a laundry list of new kinds of systems. And I wonder if you see some of these as like long-term pieces of a stack 
or if you see consolidation down the road? I think there should be consolidation down the road. I think a lot of these are features. They're not overall systems. And I imagine uh, in the database world, I can imagine there was a time where there was a lot of fragmentation and folks talked about their fancy query optimizer and their ingestion tool and their this and that. And you know, if I had to think about all those things when I'm creating my website, I, I would I'd pull my hairs out, you know. <laughs> I want a, a simple solution that works out of that. And thankfully, um, in the database world at least, there has been some formalization of some categories there where there's end-to-end solutions for it. I think for machine learning, we're still really far behind. Um, and part of it is, is really has to do with the depend. The, the, it's harder to control. Like I, I would say, a, a SQL query is pretty well understood what the inputs and outputs are for that. For a model, there are many things that can fail. Your data could be bad. Your training process could be bad. Your problem sophistication could be bad. Um, you might not have enough data. You might not have enough training time. You know, so so that I think uh, has led to folks trying to solve a bunch of point solutions in the process. Um, I don't know that I have the, the secret formula for the unified version, but I think there will be some defragmentation, hopefully. Has your um, experience at Apple colored that? I mean, you've seen end-to-end tool chains and built some, sounds like. Yeah, we built a lot of components um, when I was at Apple, a lot of platform components. Some of them were, I think, pretty interesting and generalizable. Um, but I, I guess one thing, one example I gave you is, you know, we didn't um, expose a parameter server to any <laughs> developer of machine learning model across Apple. You know, I think that the, that level of abstraction is, uh, is probably not quite helpful for people. And so there was a question of what are the right kinds of abstractions. You really want to let the different folks do the focus on the work and what they do best, right? So if you're uh, creating a, an NLP model for a task, a natural language processing model, or a um, speech recognition model, or a computer vision model, you want to think a lot about that problem. You don't want to think about distributed training or where your data is or, or all those other pieces. And so um, that's the, the challenge that we needed to address. I think as you've already been explaining, you know, I know you've thought a lot about how to put more usable ML technologies into people's hands. Um, so I want to take that idea and kind of uh, look at it from an end user perspective. And so what's your view on the role of AI in rich modern applications? Or if you prefer, what's the role of humans in AI rich modern applications? <laughs> um. Right. A part of this depends on the on the word application, what the word application means to you, if we're going to be go back to details. But uh, <laughs> to me, um, it's really interesting how the field has been evolving, right? So there's one camp in the AI field that is really focused on automation mm-hmm. or more fancy term that they use are things like human level AI or, uh, you know, general artificial intelligence or the notion that you create something that takes over some task fully. And I think that's interesting for some domains. Uh, But the place where I go to 
is personally is kind of the human in the loop question, right? So how can AI help us uh, make better decisions, live a happier day? Uh, you know, what, what is the service they have for that individual? And so be it some work that we do in healthcare where we're thinking about uh, supporting provider decisions or clinician decisions um, or patients making behavior change choices they want to make, or is it about all sorts of other places AI is being used across the world? I think those are really interesting. But of course, they both go hand in hand, right? So for example, if we have level five autonomy for self-driving cars, I'm all for that. I don't need to touch a steering wheel for the rest of my life, but that's a, that's a kind of the parallel threads here um, that I think are important. Any thoughts on the value of visualization uh, as part of this process? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that I really discovered deeply when I was at Apple uh, is how understanding data is an integral part of the whole development process for machine learning. And also, you know, for some end user applications like in the health domain. But if we focus more on the engineering parts of this, generally machine learning folks are often trained to just look at uh, convergence plots or accuracy plots or saying that my curve is better than your curve. <laughs> curve battles, yes. But the, the problem is uh, a lot of what happens is in the spaces between those curves, so to speak. It is in the, you know, when is it working or where is it working and how is the end user going to understand the output of these models or predictions or image transformations or whatever the application is uh, mm -hmm. And so data visualization became a really integral part of everything that we did. And we built up a team, uh, as, as you personally know, focused on data visualization there. And so if you go back to manufacturing, uh, as an example, we really wanted to understand what are the faults that are coming up? Um, what are the types? You know, what do they look like? Um, we want to understand uh, in in face ID, when we're trying to unlock your phone with your image of your face, and you're trying to do failure analysis, understand when it's not working or working, you understand what types of images it's working for. So you can, for example, go back and collect more backlit images because that's where it's going bad. And so just looking at uh, a single number of the table does not provide a full understanding of the whole data process. And so along the way, we end up developing data visualization tools for every step of the, the process. And I thought that was um, one of the components that made a huge difference for us. Something that drives me nuts in uh, talking to a lot of data scientists and data engineering students is that they take classes and they're taught to code and they spend all their time in a notebook and they're typing the whole time and they very rarely look at the data. Um, and it's hard to look at the data. They have to write an extra three, four lines to generate a plot or what have you. Do you see like the integration of data visualization into that machine learning experience coming down the road in the next generation of tools? So, so uh, there's two parts that I want to react to. The first one is I've been teaching machine learning for a long time and basically all the homeworks always work. Like if you implement your code properly, 
you know, they all work. So the students come out trained to believe that machine learning always works. And <laughs> it's not your responsibility to understand what is working, not working. And then when uh, in typical classes, when you, you do a class project at the end, in a, the, they present their posters and the expectation is that they did something that worked at the end. It's not that they really analyzed the, the results. But if you look at, you know, for example, scientific communities, I don't know, biology, there's a lot more emphasis on understanding than there is on just mm -hmm. the outcome of the prediction. And I think um, the machine learning models and tools have become so complicated and the decisions are based on such complex interactions between data and, and users and models that... I think some of the systems have to be, we need to learn from say biology uh, in terms of how do we think about how we examine these things and how do we really understand them more holistically um, or from science, maybe the scientific method. But going, going back to your question, I think the successful tools of the future will integrate data visualization uh, as well as uh, this human in the loop process inside of every component. The fact that you can do um, build a, train a model with a few lines of code in, in one of these existing tools is great. The fact that then you have to write a bunch of lines of code in some other tool to really understand what's happening and visualize it, it's a, it's a, a flaw that I think could be done much better. And, and you see some tools like TensorBoard, which goes with TensorFlow, mm -hmm. that does some very basic visualizations, having a tremendous impact because you just get it by default. There's this power of kind of the default out of it. So more thinking of that, I'm, I'm hoping you will come up with some really great ideas that will really change how this all gets integrated. So, uh, Carlos, you know, the three of us overlap in the academic world. Sometimes it, it seems like you've seen and done it all. Um, so I'm kind of curious if you can name something that's surprised you in the AI world recently. So one of the things that's positively surprising me about uh, the AI field is how much uh, the field has shifted to think about uh, issues of algorithmic bias, fairness, um, and really the, the ethical considerations of what we're doing. Uh, if you think about a few years back, not long ago, these were not at anybody's radar, or almost anybody's radar. And today, there is a tremendous amount of investment across the board to think about the broader implications of the work that we do. And so I'm positively impressed with the, with the energy behind that. I think we still have a long way to go to get to the outcomes we're hoping for. But I see interesting developments, and I'm hoping that we'll do more of this. So, Carlos, you know, in addition to talking about data um, and all the things that surround it, uh, we also like to learn uh, something fun about our guests. So is there any uh, fun facts about yourself that you'd like to share? Nothing fun about me, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're the least fun guy I know, I'm sure. The least fun guy I know, yeah. Um, fun fact, I don't know. Uh, when I was deciding what to do for my undergrad or what career I was going to follow, I, I was very indecisive and I was looking at a bunch of things. And uh, uh, one thing I say now is, you know, if uh, computer science doesn't work out, then art is going to be my backup plan. 
Um, but the, the, the fun fact, though, is when I, when I was trying to decide what to do, you know, I read a lot of sci- science fiction, Isaac Asimov or whatever. So you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to build a robot. Mm. And so uh, completely naively, I said, okay, I'm going to build a robot. We're going to study for my undergrad mechanical engineering. So I'm a mechanical engineer because that's how you build robots. And only, only uh, later on did I realize the thing that I thought was really hard about it is, was, you know, what goes inside the robot's head. And that's kind of how it all evolved. But um, I got into the PhD program in computer science at Stanford, um, you know, some many, many years ago. And I didn't know anything about computer science. So, for example, you know, I didn't know what P or NP was or the pumping lemma, which uh, Joe is going to explain to me a little later. And so it was a, it was kind of a shocker to uh, try to experience this whole, you know, what is, what is the science of computation versus, <laughs> you know, the ability to program, which I think I was pretty good at. Um, and so it's, it's been a journey of discovery for me. Uh, I remember uh, even when I finished my PhD, which was pretty theoretical work mm. in machine learning and reinforcement learning, and I went to spend time at a, at a lab focused on sensor networks, that uh, Intel lab that Joe was, was leading, um, there's all the system people, and I didn't know what systems was about, and what were, the, were they thinking about, and how, how they treated this, and I remember uh, seeing a talk where they're talking about the internet and uh, the internet was kind of like this living being going back to my, my statement from earlier, it was like treated like the cell, you know, like if you probe it this way, you'll do this. You probe. It was really hard for me to understand how the systems got so complex that, uh, you know, they, they, they were beyond the capability of an individual. So I've been on this journey of discovery of what computer science is about since my mechanical engineering days, and I hope to have more to come. But uh, that's that's a bit of my personal journey, I guess. Hey, Carlos, can you describe one of your pieces of AI-oriented art for us? <laughs> so um, I, when I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon, I taught a course with uh, another professor, Osman Khan, who became a good friend, and we called it Art That Learns. Um, and it was maybe 2007 or so. Um, it was about using machine learning to build art installations. And uh, this is not my piece, but uh, it was uh, one that I, I loved. It was one of the students, Suan Hong, um, and others who did. And, and the, the idea here was to question, what is art? And so they built this installation where you could put in a drawing on a piece of paper, and you'll scan the drawing, and you'll decide whether it was art or not. And <laughs> if it was art, you'll put it into this box to save. And if it wasn't art, you'll put it into a shredder. And it's ready to pile that spread on the floor. And the way that they, they, they made that decision was, uh, you know, their, their interpretation of what art was, was this anomaly detection algorithm. So, you know, if it was the first triangle, then it was art. But if somebody else drew a triangle, then you know maybe it's not art anymore, and so it went into the shredder. So you know that 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 is my favorite ever uh, installation piece using AI. 
I love the idea of then the shredded paper itself being like the centerpiece of the art exhibit. <laughs> yeah, like spreading and spreading, you know, like it goes, it goes yeah. on forever. I mean, there's, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to be explored. And, the, you know, the visualization of that not art data through the shred is a, is a real plus. <laughs> wow. Well, that's, a, that's amazing. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. It's such fun to have you on the podcast. Again, folks, we've been talking to Professor Carlos Gestrin of Stanford University. If you have a question or topic you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at datawranglers at trifacta.com. And as always, make sure to review and subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcasts. The Data Wranglers podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. On behalf of Joe Hellerstein and the whole team, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Hare. See you next time. Thank you.